Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you that we could be in your house this day. Oh Lord, um, we thank you that the words that you have spoken, even through your prophets of old, even before the time that the Messiah has come, that these words are still true to us today. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear the promises and the truths that you have spoken. God, give us understanding and help us to rely and to trust upon you. We especially come to you, King Jesus, and we do pray that you would do that which we uh, proclaimed earlier, that is our King, that you would subdue us to yourself, that you would rule and defend us, that you would restrain and conquer all our and all your enemies. We just pray that you would do this through your word that's spoken today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1928, and the times were hard, and the months set before the stock market crash that sent the nation into what's known as the Great Depression was uncertain, and everybody was uh, seeing that it was a difficult time, and many were looking for a Messiah of sorts. And in 1928, Louisiana, the Messiah showed up, or at least that's what some of the grassroots voters thought. Huey P. Long was elected governor of Louisiana in 1928, and he won the hearts of the people of that state by speaking their language. He used means that nobody else had used up to that point in time. He used the radio. Uh, he used uh, the, the sound trucks. Kids, I don't know if you've ever seen old TV shows where they would have a truck drive down the road and they had signs on the side of the trucks, usually for some politician. And then they would talk over the loudspeaker and, and people all over the city could hear it. But that's what he did. And he would ride not only through the streets of the cities, but he spent a lot of time even driving down back country roads and going into places in Louisiana where people had never seen a politician face to face in real life. He traveled like 15,000 miles in his campaign and he spoke to the people. He brought a band and he would have them play and gather the people and then he would give us his, uh, his promises. But he spoke unlike any other politician. He talked about every man being a king. He talked about uh, the need to share the wealth of the nation and that the corrupt politicians and big businesses and newspapers and people like that needed to, to, to share their wealth. And so voters were captured by his rhetoric and his political savvy. Um, he actually won as governor of the state of Louisiana by the largest margin ever. And as far as I know, that, that margin has never been beaten since then. And then when he went on to the U.S. Senate, he won by a landslide there as well. Now, regardless of what you think of his politics, I have my opinions as well. But regardless of what you think about his politics, the fact of the matter is he was loved by the people. And they very much looked to him to be their hope. And he had his eye on the White House, but he never made it because he was assassinated at the age of 42. And as, he laid, as they laid his body in the state capital of Louisiana, there were like 150,000 people that came to, to view his body. He truly was a man that was loved by the people and they, they appreciated what he did for them. Well, like the people in Louisiana in the 1920s, the nation of Judah um, was also looking for a Messiah. They were faced with desperate circumstances like the ones, like, like, well, actually, probably like ones that we have never even faced. You know, we've talked about this, even how their king, 
who was supposed to be a godly man and leader of the nation, actually had spurned the instruction of God and chosen not to lean upon the Lord, but instead to make an alliance with Syria, which would then backfire upon him in the worst possible way, which meant for the nation either that they would be killed or they would be deported to a foreign country. And it's in such grave times as, as this that oftentimes the human heart reaches out for something that transcends the limits of the moment. They, we oftentimes look for escape. We look for deliverance. We look for a way out. And our longings often turn to cries of the heart. Is there anybody there who cares? You know, will someone come to rescue us? Will the tables be turned uh, to take up our cause? And that was the mood not only... In Judah in 700 B.C., but also in America in the early 1920s, and I would suggest is probably somewhat in our country as well today. Now, unlike or like uh, the nation of Israel, unfortunately, our country is not necessarily looking to the Lord to be a Messiah and deliverer. But nonetheless, God sends his prophet Isaiah to proclaim the prophetic message that gives the final answer to these longings and it is that God will send a messianic king and Isaiah declares by the authority of the Holy Spirit that this king is Emmanuel that he is God with us and though he is human in nature he is the wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace and his mission is to come and to heal the scars and the wounds of the brokenhearted and set the prisoner free to restore what has been lost in the wasted years without him. And so now we know that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But in Isaiah 11, the prophet not only speaks to the people in his time of hope, of a remnant that will return after God's judgment has come upon his people. And not only does Isaiah speak about a a coming Messiah that will come 2,000 years later, but actually he looks even beyond our time in 2017 into uh, eternity future to the time when Jesus Christ will establish his rule. And, and And he holds up in essence sort of a snapshot of what it will look like when Christ's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, when the new heavens and the new earth come. So now why did God send this vision to uh, uh, Isaiah's people? And why does he give us this as well? Because we need to understand what kind of king it is that was born in that manger in Bethlehem on that Christmas morning. And so whether we come to worship him this morning or whether our hearts are more like Herod and the religious advisors who were hostile to God, we need to understand who this king is. And so we're going to look at his character, we're going to look at his rule, and we're going to look at his realm, or the kingdom in which he rules. So the character, his rule, and his realm. Well, Isaiah starts out in verses 1 and 2 by talking about the character of this king that is coming. He describes this king as a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. Now, to go back to the previous chapter, the end of it, maybe verses 20 and following, but at least verses uh, 33 and following, you see that God talks about this great judgment that's going to come upon the nations around him and that God will bring his people back to his land. But God's uh, judgment will, will be like the leveling of a woods. 
that, that all these great big trees will just be nothing of a stump. And in that context, then he says that this new king that's coming will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, um, for us, we hear that. We hear that every Christmas or a lot of Christmases. And it's almost like, yeah, this is very familiar to us. But to Isaiah's uh, audience, this would not have been familiar. Actually, this was sort of shocking because among the kings of God's people, only David alone was referred to as the son of Jesse. None of the other kings that came after David were uh, called that. So to say that there will be a king like David would have taken the Jews by surprise and been an announcement of tremendous force to God's people that the king, Jesus, is a king like no other. And we need to understand that this morning. I know all of us have had those in authority in our lives. You know, we've had parents and teachers and police officers and politicians and elders, and some of those leaders and those in authority over us have been very good. And some of those have been not so good. And maybe even some have been abusive in our lives. But no matter what we have experienced in terms of authority in our lives, as good as it gets for us, Jesus is even a different kind of authority figure than that which we have experienced. And in a minute, we're going to see what kind of king he is. But before I get there, I, I just want to point out one thing that's sort of interesting here, that not only does Isaiah call Jesus the shoot from the stump of Jesse, but he also says that he's a branch from his roots. Now, that reference to his roots means that not only did Jesus come, you know, as a shoot, a shoot comes out of a stump, so that meant that Jesus came from the line of Jesse, but also he was the, from the root. So Jesus actually was the source of Jesse as well. So he, he came from Jesse and yet he was before Jesse. Now that might seem a little confusing, kids, to you. But it's, it's, it sort of reminds me of the conversation that Jesus had with the Jews in John chapter 8, uh, verse 48. And the following verses where the Jews were asking Jesus if he was greater than Abraham. And Jesus said that Abraham was looking forward to seeing him, that is seeing Jesus' day. And Abraham did see it and he was glad. Well, the Jews asked Jesus, how could Abraham have seen your day because you're not even 50 years old? So, and Abraham died many centuries ago. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And in that, Jesus was saying, I am God. I am eternal. I have existed forever. And of course, the Jews were upset, and so they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus just walked away. Well, Isaiah is saying the same thing here. Isaiah refers to this king who will come in the future, and yet he says that Jesse came from this future king, that Jesus is the root of Jesse. This could only be the case if Jesus, the Messiah, is eternal God himself. And so we see that seed of the woman that we started out with in this series in Genesis 3.15, um, who is also God who made the world. And it's fulfilled in the Messiah. And God has been true, we see here, to his covenant. That that which he promised in Genesis 3.15, that he would send one who would crush the head of Satan, that Isaiah says, yes, God is going to do that. God promises to do that. And so God is faithful even in the days of darkness, even in a day 
when all we see is stumps in our lives, you know, when all we see is death and decay, uh, they must uh, have even wondered in Isaiah's day, can God be trusted? Has he abandoned his word? Has he forgotten to be faithful? Because I don't think we can really truly understand how dark these times were. Maybe if we as a nation were overtaken by some cruel captor, the Assyrians were wicked people and ruthless. And maybe if we were overtaken by ISIS or something like that, uh, maybe then we would understand uh, the darkness of these people. And yet, God wants them to see that the seed of David will come, the seed of Jesse, and he will be endowed with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, as he says that the, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. But then he goes on in this passage, and he says he will have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and all of these are by the Holy Spirit that comes upon him. So these are the attributes of this great king, he understands what we need and what he needs to do for us. He has the wisdom to respond well to every challenge and to meet every crisis that we encounter. He has the power to effect lasting change. And above all, he trembles in all in reverence before the Lord, his God. That's our king. That doesn't mean that that king gives us everything we want, but he gives us and provides for us everything we need. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, you see that people recognize this in Jesus Christ. In Luke, it says that he grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. In Mark chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that was given to him? How are such mighty works done by the deeds of his hands. They just couldn't understand. They saw Jesus as very different than the authority of the Pharisees. He spoke as one who had authority, unlike the religious leaders. And then even towards the end of Jesus' ministry, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony, as he's preparing to face the cross, what does he pray to God? He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so... He goes obediently to the cross of the Father to make the full payment for our sins. So here is a, a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who even in the moment of unimaginable pressure and temptation turns aside from his own desires and rather does the will of his Father. This is the kind of king we serve, not a king, not one who is in authority, who's using his power uh, for his own benefit, not as one who is using to rule and to crush people. But we come before a king who submits himself to the will of father. There's no deficit in him, no sense of incompetency. In our king, there's no blind spots, no gaps in his ability. He is a sufficient savior, perfectly qualified to receive our trust, infinitely deserving of our obedience as his subjects and able to save us. The shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, the child who was born of the virgin and laid in the manger that first Christmas, is a perfect king under whose reign we find refuge. Even in our darkest times, even when we desire to escape our circumstances, 
be delivered or to find a way out. He bids us to rest in his rule, to know that he is God and he is a benevolent and compassionate and gracious king. So that's the character of the king that that is our Lord and our Savior. But let me talk about his rule. Now his rule really is that we just talked about, or the character that we just talked about, is really out of which his rule comes. So the wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the fear of the Lord with which the Spirit endowed the humanity of our Savior, qualifying him to rule, are now applied to the works that he does amongst his church. Notice that his rule here is preeminently marked by justice and righteousness. I think that's a great way to sum it up. And that really comes from our call to worship that we used this morning from Psalm 99, that he is a savior that's marked by justice and righteousness in his judgment. He shall not judge by what he sees, we see here, or by what he hears. Now, this is a contrast to what we see Ahaz. In Ahaz, he saw uh, Israel coming against him. He saw Assyria coming against him. And so what did he do back in Isaiah 7? He went to Assyria and said, I'm going to um, put myself an ally with them so that maybe they would protect us. And so he reacted to that which he saw. God, though, in his grace, sends a prophet, the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to say, don't go by what you see. Don't function by what you hear. But trust my promises. I am your deliverer. I am the one that will care for you. But Ahaz would not listen to that. He wouldn't do that. Instead, he did what he felt was right. He reacted to the circumstances. And that's how we are, are we not? Are we not a people who judge a book by its cover? We're, we're, we're quick to pass judgment upon other people or to sort of sum up a situation and decide what is the best thing to do? We're, we're not as prone to trust in the Lord. We form our opinions often far too readily. We, we dismiss those things that the Lord sees. We look at the external things of, of people or of circumstances, but our Lord and our Savior sees the heart of man. He knows the inward workings of the situations. And it says here in this passage that he also... Um, that he rules by his word. In other words, the great instrument by which King Jesus will accomplish all of these things is by the word that he speaks. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. As Calvin puts it, the prophet here extols the efficacy of the word which is Christ's royal scepter. He rules by the royal scepter of his word. He speaks and sinners are saved and the wicked are judged. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life, the dead receive. So both he brings judgment, but he also brings life through the words that he speaks. One of the great grounds of joy for Christmas is that Jesus Christ is king and he was born to rule. So he is a king of great character. He is a king who rules his people well but let's look at the realm of the king too in verses 6 through 10 what is the result of his leadership his rule over his people well Isaiah chapter 11 sums up um, what that looks like uh, he says <coughs> excuse me and 
And in doing this, we're, we're not only looking forward to what Christ was like when he came the first time, but what he came as the second time when he comes to rule forever and eternity. And we see that as Isaiah looks forward, he paints a picture of great joy for, for God's people, a place that is a, a time that is very different than how we see our world today. And I think that's a great question even for us as I was thinking about this passage. Do we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ? Do we look forward with great anticipation? Do we look forward to the time when we have the shedding of our bodies and we get to be uh, in heaven with the Lord with new bodies to see him face to face? You know, is it one of those things where we look at our brother, R.C. Sproul, who passed away this week? who went from this world to the next, and do we envy him and think, oh, how fortunate he is to be with the Savior, or do we feel sad that he was taken from this earth? I think it's so easy to be tied as Christians to the, this place and to forget that the place that is promised us by our God is a, a greater and a more wonderful place. And that's the picture that Isaiah gives us in verses 6 to 10 and, and the work that he has said. And I just want to read that again, if I could. Now listen, kids, I want you to listen really carefully. This is how he describes what's going to happen when Christ rule uh, at the final time. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, kids, how many of you know wolves right now that if you put a lamb in front of them, they just hang out together? Then nothing would happen. That's not what would happen, wouldn't it? That wolf would just scarf up that lamb. He'd just eat him dead, probably. Okay? It says here, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Well, in our world today, a leopard wouldn't lie down with the goat. He would eat the goat, right? And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Now, I don't know too many bears that eat grass. It says their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. But listen to this. The nursing child, that means a little, little, little baby, right? Uh, shall play over the hole of a cobra. Now, what's a cobra? That's a very poisonous snake, isn't it? That's the kind of snake that comes up and it has like a, a cover over its head. And, you know, sometimes you see these things on TV where they play the pipe and the cobra comes up and sort of, uh, you know, moves with the motion of the person that's playing the pipe. And, you know, if you get struck by that cobra, you're dead. But in the time that Jesus reigns, the nursing child, the little baby, will play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's Den, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That is a time that we're looking forward to. And it sort of reminds you of Genesis 3, where when Adam and Eve sinned against God, not only did God uh, bring about his judgment upon them, but it says that even the earth was cursed. And so... Uh, the world in which we live is not the world in which it will be when Christ reigns supremely, but instead uh, it is a fallen world in which we live. But if you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that, that that's going to change. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so there's that sense in which even the creation is being bound up. But when Christ comes, when Christ rules over us, then we will be set free. And it says at the end of verse 9, not only will there be no hurt or destruction in all the holy mountain, but it tells us why. It says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That God's word would would go forth, which... You know, as we think about that, God's word is already going forth, not to that extent yet. And we look forward to the day where there will be such peace as that. But even now, there is a picture of spiritual peace that is going on, even as we are united with Christ as his children. And now there is peace between us and God. And, and not only that, but in verse 10, as uh, Isaiah once again goes back to this theme of the root of Jesse. He says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, this is sort of referred to in Romans chapter 15 that we read. We didn't read quite that much of Romans 15. But it's cited to show that the gospel has come not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. For the nations of the world. So we see here a picture of the gospel, the redeeming work of this king-like redeemer affecting the whole world. Every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people. There's no longer hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You know, that uh, we see here a harmony and a fellowship with God's people. Not perfect, obviously. But still, you can pick up and you can go to Spain and you can worship in Spain and and you will feel a sense of camaraderie with those brothers and sisters in Christ because of that peace that each of us has with God and the fellowship and the koinonia that we have with one another as well. Is, that, is there that sense of resting in your life? Is there that sense of, of trusting the Lord to knowing and appreciating and seeing the word of, of, of uh, his rule rule over your life? Or are we people who are struggling and battling, seeking to fix our own problems and work our own ways? Are we people who maybe uh, there's much dust on our Bibles? We might come on Sunday morning and we might hear the word preached, but during the week uh, our Bibles maybe don't get much use. And so I don't want to say Christ doesn't rule over us, but we are not availing ourselves of the godly rule that Christ seeks to have in our lives even today. And I want us to see the blessedness of the grace that he gives to us through the word that he gives to us and that we are ones that are blessed to have that. So as we come this Christmas season, we must worship the Lord. We must give praise to him as our king because the baby that was born was filled with the Spirit and is perfectly qualified to serve us as both king and savior of our lives because he reigns in righteousness and wields the royal scepter of his word even now in our hearts. 
And because the baby who was born, the man who was crucified, and the king who reigns on heaven's throne, he's coming back one day. And he's coming back one day soon. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found as we, as we uh, sing in the old Christmas carol. And he will put all things right. Death will die. Sin will be removed. Sorrow will be dissolved. And every tear wiped away from our eyes. And the world to come, the new creation, will be a perfect realm of peace under the reign of Prince Jesus. The final gift of that Christmas will be a new creation, a home of righteousness where we and all those who have gone before us uh, are trusting in Jesus Christ will be united to him. And so we'll even see our our great friend and brother, R.C. Sproul. I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, he had a phenomenal mind, you know, and he understood the word of God in a way I will never understand. And not only that, but you could just see also that relationship that he had with Christ. It wasn't just a sense of knowing it in his head, but he had that relationship with Christ as well. But I can't help but think, as great a theologian as he was, that when he closed his eyes in death here and he opened his eyes in heaven, that he wasn't surprised. That he wasn't shocked, you know, to see that ahead of us, is an extraordinary work of God that should give us such great hope. And that's what Christian Christmas is about. And that's what the story of that little baby in a manger is about, that it's bigger than the whole world, that Christ is going to come to restore not only our relationship with him, but in the entirety of creation, and that we will have the blessedness of being in the presence of our God and our Father and our Savior and our King. Amen? Let's bow our heads and, and just have a time of silence as we think about the word that has been preached. We thank you, blessed Father, for the, the picture, the snapshot that we have gotten of, uh, of our King. I pray that you would cause us today to think much about the one who rules over us. God, I pray that you would help us in our time of weakness when we, uh, like Ahaz, fall back on our own abilities and we strategize and try to figure out and think how we're going to resolve all these things in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us not to wrestle so, but that you would cause us to be people that would rest in you and you alone. God, that even when we don't understand the uncertainties, even when things around us are bleak and and seem uh, totally out of control, I pray for your peace to rest upon our hearts, to know that we are loved, that we are taken care of, that Christ is our King and that he is at work and continues to work. And we can only imagine, Lord, even those situations that we face, whether it be relationships whether it be the, the, our own struggle with our sin, whatever it is, God, that is uh, uh, taking over our thoughts, that instead we might reflect upon you, that we might draw strength from you and from your spirit. And God, that we would be a hope, people of great hope. And may that hope so shine in this world, Lord, 
that others would see it as well and know that there is the work of our God in our hearts. And Lord, may we have the opportunity and the privilege to share that hope that we have with others. And we ask that you would add to our numbers those who would be saved. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.